man is singing this song, man, the wrong man. The wrong man is singing this song, man, the wrong man. How many ways can you say it won't wait? How many times can you mention I see an extension? There are only 90 days to the execution day. Give me a stay. Don't make me a statistical anomaly. It wasn't me who shot a man in Reno just to watch him die I was at the same casino but it was another guy A Folsom prisoner admitted he committed the crime Now I'm serving his time Now my life's on the line An eye for an eye sure two Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, October 13th, 2019 I forgot what day it was My name is James Marino, which I remembered And on today's broadcast we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hello. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, just a reminder for our listeners out there, you can support Broadway Radio by going to patreon.com slash Broadway Radio and uh, support us and our broadcasts and uh, keep us going well into 2020 and beyond. Uh, so go to patreon.com slash Broadway Radio to check it out. Last week we talked about um, the LBJ play, The Great Society, and I had mentioned during uh, the discussion of this was that I, I, I was under the impression that LBJ uh, oh, took right. on took on the um, the social the social uh, programs because it was a because it was a Kennedy thing. And uh, one of our listeners emailed us to set me straight on that. And uh, you, can you guys guess who it was? Crow Lockhart. No, uh, no, no. Kerr uh, had had emailed me to congratulate us on us our sponsorships. Of, uh, but thank you, Kerr. Uh, but Josh Israel, Josh. Oh, really? Uh, Josh emailed me because Josh worked on a book of LBJ. Wow. Uh, he was the head researcher for Nick. Uh, Kotz's book, Lyndon Baines wow. Johnson, Martin Luther King, and the Laws That Changed America, wow. which uh, really was uh, – he gave me a little bit of a background on it. I bought it immediately off of Amazon. So uh. Uh, Josh Israel rocks. He gave me a, a great um, – uh, insight into how the uh, the Great Society play is actually – I almost want to go back and see Great Society again after I read this book. So uh, I'll, I'm going to link a link to uh, this book in our show notes, Linda Baines Johnson, Martin Luther King, and the Laws That Changed America by uh, Nick Kotz. Uh, I will link to that in the show notes. And thank you, Josh, for uh, chiming in and letting us know uh, more about these things and how theater and real life are intersecting. <laughs> <laughs> and and also, he's one of our most faithful trivia question answerers. Yes, exactly. 
Well, you know, uh, also what I didn't mention, and I think this is so interesting, uh, one of the last, one of the final moments in The Great Society, um, it's very briefly, as I said, they, they kind of deal with the deaths, the killings of Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy after the fact, mm-hmm. uh, as, as a sort of a flashback, um, and very briefly, but they do have Bryce Pinkham as Kennedy say the last few words that that Kennedy ever spoke at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, um, where, uh, you know, this was right after he was declared the winner in the South Dakota and California presidential primaries in the 1968 election. And then he walked off the stage um, and, you know, uh, to be assassinated. Mm. And our mutual friend and colleague, Kevin McInerney, who was at the show the night that uh, Peter and I were there anyway, uh, and James, I'm sorry, uh, uh, James and I were there. Kevin was in that, was at that event. Wow. So he was actually there. And, you know, it just brings home the fact that this is all still within living memory, although not that much longer. Yeah. You know. All right. So, uh, First up, uh, last week Peter talked briefly about slave play, but Michael and I have gotten a chance to see it. So, Michael, tell us what your thoughts are on slave play. Well, I really, really liked it and found it very uh, compelling when I saw it off-Broadway at New York Theatre Workshop, Uh, although I did notice one major flaw there, which unfortunately has continued. Um, I think that it's extremely overwritten. Uh, I uh, was hearing conflicting reports about the running time, but the night I saw the show, uh, if you, you know, even if you account for starting late and all of that, uh, it was about 2.10, two hours and 10 minutes with no intermission, Uh, maybe 2.15, somewhere around there. And I, I just think that's a little long, especially when so much of the material is, uh, I, I don't know if superfluous is the best word, but very redundant. It seemed like they made some interesting points and then kept making them over and over again. Uh, specifically, the center of the play is a therapy session. And I honestly thought that if that was half as long, <laughs> um, they could have made all the same points and just had a much stronger play. So I, I hope uh, – I mean I do think Jeremy O'Harris, the playwright, is extremely talented. And I hope he's not one of those people who resists editing, uh, you know, who resists the advice of, of dramaturgs, etc., who might – be able to help him in that regard. Um, you know, we have, there are other famous examples of playwrights that in my opinion would have been far better. uh, Their plays would have been far better if they had been better at editing themselves or had people, uh, you know, help them in that regard. For example, uh, Eugene O'Neill and August Wilson. So those are two, you know, (laughs) stellar examples of people who were, regarded as giants in the playwriting field. Um, so it's not as if Jeremy O'Harris, it's not as if he's the first person to have this flaw. But um, I hope, uh, you know, I, I would just say respectfully that that's something he might consider. And uh, the one other play of his that I 
that I remember clearly that I saw, which was Daddy, I would say that also had a similar uh, similar problem. So uh, I, I, I do hope he looks at that. But anyway, um, uh, we often find when plays move from off-Broadway to Broadway that the biggest change is the audience response. And it's, of course, it's a ch- uh, chicken and egg thing, uh, you know, um, there were it seemed there were there were so many more laughs in this uh, in response to this production than when I saw it at New York Theater Workshop, and I don't know if that's because the actors are playing it more broadly. Um, uh, I didn't sense that they were, or it's just uh, that somehow when it's on Broadway, people think that, that they're supposed to respond more vocally. Uh, I, I noticed this with other shows. Um, and so I, I did, did you guys have a theory on that? Well, of course there are more people. Of course there are more people. Yeah. So the, so the laugh, whatever laughter there is, is magnified. And then also, you know, laughter we're often told, uh, feeds on itself. Mm, yeah. Yes. So uh, I suppose maybe that's the 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 uh, the main reason. Actually, I thought it helped um, in this case because there are uh, many sections, as I indicated, where the play can be very heavy-handed. But there, the fact that there seemed to be so much humor uh, in the beginning, uh, I think, helped when it made the transition uh, into being more serious and heavy handed, uh, because it, it wasn't like that throughout. And I think it actually leavened the play. So I, uh, others may disagree with me, but in this case, I thought it actually helped. Um, this is directed by Robert O'Hara and, uh, as I said, written by Jeremy O'Harris and the Cast is Addo Blankson Wood, James Cusati Moyer, Sullivan Jones, Joaquina Kalukango, Shalia Latour, Irene Sophia Lucio, Annie McNamara, and Paul Alexander Nolan. This is also a play that you, um, you, you, it, it's difficult for a reviewer because there are going to be wildly varying opinions on what constitutes a spoiler. Um, in this play, um, uh, it, it, seeing it again, I—it's interesting. I thought that the the first big twist—I—I I, I would say there's one one big twist in the play. And when I saw it at New York Theater Workshop, I did not see it coming, although I was a little confused about what was happening at the beginning, and then the twist explained it. Um, but here, seeing it again, I, I noticed several. Uh, clues in the first three scenes um, as to the twist that was going to happen. Uh, So, but having said that, I still think that I probably should not say any more because I wouldn't want to spoil anything for anyone. But suffice it to say the play is about um, interracial romantic relationships, marriages and and couplings and uh, the issues involved in that um, in the modern day. And this is seen uh, also with multiple references to uh, to the antebellum South and slavery and uh, kind of uh, famous, one might even say cliched interracial relationships in that time. So uh, Harris is trying to uh, 
view one against the other and and come to some kind of conclusions but mostly it's a um it's a character study showing how these these three couples um react to that or actually four couples uh it's very um he tries to spread the wealth because there's a one couple is a black male and a white female another is a uh white male and a black female uh, another is a black male and a white male, and then it turns out um, that this two, these two therapists um, are uh, the uh, these two women are also a couple, and one of them is black and one of them is white. So uh, I, I, we don't have much not represented here. Uh, I guess trans people aren't, and that's about it. Um, I I did uh, find. Much of it very engaging and much of the discussion um, and the conflicts that these characters are having with each other, very, very interesting. And then other parts um, on the second viewing, I guess, struck me, as I said, as very heavy handed and repetitious. So I um, I do think, as I said, that he's extraordinarily ta- talented, Jeremy O'Harris, but um, maybe a little more focus and uh, – and editing in for future for future projects might be a good idea. So uh, I'm interested in the point of view that you had there, Michael, because mm. I, I I did not see it down at New York Theater Workshop, um, uh. and this was my first exposure to it, and and I th- thought to myself, I was like, why did this transfer? Yeah. <laughs> well, certainly I would think not for any hope of uh, commercial success. Um the only thing that might have made them think that perhaps it might be a commercial success is there is some quite explicit sex in it. Uh specifically um at the very end. Uh and I guess maybe uh you know I'm, I'm sure word will get out and uh, that some people might possibly go for that reason alone but um but the early indications were otherwise. I have not actually checked the grosses since uh, the, this play got some very, very good reviews. So it got very good reviews. It was a New York Times critics pick, yes. uh, and it extended for two weeks. Right, right. Into deeper into January, it's scheduled to close the third week of January now instead of the first week of January. Right. Uh, I think that there's something right in back of it in the same theater, so they couldn't extend. But, um. Uh, I felt exactly the I, I you you were able to find the words that I couldn't find that I, I felt it was overwritten. I wrote to I wrote to a friend of mine who said, "Oh, you, I just saw that you saw Slave Play on Facebook. What did you think?" And I, I wrote back to them that it was brief glimpses of brilliance overshadowed by a lot of self indulgence. Yeah, I think that's quite accurate. Maybe I would say that. Um, uh, more than brief uh, moments of, of perception, uh, uh, I, I would say maybe I have a slightly higher estimate of the of the uh, percentage of each. But but um, yeah, rather than I mean I and I, I hate to rewrite. Um, well, I hate yeah. to rewrite what a what an author is uh, putting out there. But I, I would have liked to have gone maybe deeper into one maybe two of the couples instead of having four repetitious lines there uh and maybe it could have been 
you know, maybe they have restated over and over, as you said, heavy handedly, um, what their points were. But uh, I that's I, interesting. Uh, the the friend that I went with who was seeing it for the first time, the first thing he said afterwards is it should have been only that one couple, the one played by. Uh, uh, Paul Alexander Nolan. Yeah, the first couple. And yes, and Joaquina Calocongo. And Paul's uh, uh, accent threw me. I kept on saying, I kept on saying that it just is his accent because having seen him in a bunch of other things, I was like, why, why is that accent there? It didn't <laughs> seem like it didn't seem like his being from England had anything to do with the story either. But, you know, I uh, when I saw it downtown, it occurred to me, uh, I almost wanted to, I was hoping to run into him on the street one day and ask him if the character was always British or uh, if that was something that evolved. But I thought almost that maybe they did it so there would be, um, well, here again, this might be a spoiler. Don't listen if you don't want to hear it. Uh, uh, that there would be more of a contrast when he uh, then assumes the broad southern accent. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler saying he's got this. Okay. Other, yeah. Okay. Okay. So I, I, and I think that, uh, you know, he did, he did a great job. I think everybody did a great job. I, I just felt that there was, it, it sort of felt overly politically correct to me by saying, Oh, we're going to do exact, we're going to cover every single possibility. And, and you, you talked about the four couples and all the different possibilities of mixing and matching, and mm. uh, and each each one of those situations has their own unique perspective. Yes, that is true, but we're trying to do too much with just one show. Also, the uh, my friend commented that the other two couples, especially, there's no tie up. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Which is, you know, there doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. have to be a tie-up. Yeah. But but when there are all these there, these three couples, and and actually even the the main couple we were just talking about, the ending is very very um, open to interpretation as to what happens next. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, a lot of loose ends and open, you know, things left open rather than closed, and uh, yeah. All right. So that is Slave Play. As I mentioned, it's been extended to January 19th, uh, playing at the Golden. Um, and if you're a listener, you know, get engaged with us and tell us what you thought about it. Maybe there's a point of view that we, we've missed here. This episode is being brought to you by ShowTickets.com. ShowTickets.com is your go-to source for the best deals on Broadway and off-Broadway shows, New York City tours, and more. Right now, you can save over 40% on tickets to see Frozen, 35% on Oklahoma, and Beautiful, the Carol King musical, and 25% on Waitress. Plus, check out our blog for exclusive interview content and stars and creators of Broadway's latest and greatest, as well as dining guys, itineraries, theater news, and more. ShowTickets.com has everything you need to make your next trip to New York City one to remember at prices you'll love. What are you waiting for? Check us out today. ShowTickets.com. So next up, Peter, you got a chance to see Linda Vista. So tell us about Linda Vista. This is a play that's gotten a great deal of attention, um, and a lot of people have had very negative feelings about this play because they feel that the um, protagonist, uh, a guy named Dick Wheeler, is unsympathetic. 
Uh, he is a man who's getting a divorce and um, he's being fixed up by his two old friends, one of whom he used to date. And um, he connects with this woman who falls more in love with him than he does with her. And the real problem is in the second uh, part of the play, he treats her terribly, truly terribly. And this is something which one can't really forgive him for, except for one thing. And I have a feeling what the playwright is getting at, and he's Tracy Letts, who we certainly respect because he's given us a lot of great plays over the years. But, um, you know, the real problem is when you're going through a divorce, you're pretty crazy. And I wonder if this is what Tracy Letts is getting at. Now, I've been through this, and James, I know you have too. And I would suggest, um, James, that you, like me, were not at your best at that moment in time because you're trying to figure out all sorts of things and you're doing the best you can and you'll tell your problems to anybody who'll listen and so on and so forth. So if that's what indeed Tracy Letts was getting at, I think he's been tremendously successful. So it's not to me so much a case of an unsympathetic guy. It's a guy who's just off the rails as a result of what's happening to him. So Ian Barford is very, very good as Dick Wheeler. I think he's um, terrific in the part. And it's it's going to be a play that's going to be very tough to take for a lot of people, especially if indeed you've been through a divorce or are going through a divorce. I don't think this is the show for you to see. Um, you know, Catherine Hepburn famously said, marriage is not a word, it's a sentence. And the thing is, even if you're paroled hmm. from that sentence, you're still going to have a tough time of it, just as prisoners in prison when they're released have a tough time reentering the real world. So again, if Tracy Letts and I ever meet and I say to him, look, that was quite a thing you wrote about how hard it is to be a divorced man. And he says, gee, I wasn't getting at that at all. I won't be astonished, but I won't be surprised if that was the point of Linda Vista. Uh, I can't even, uh, I, I was talking with somebody about uh, my, my divorce uh, uh, last week. And it's funny because I barely remember clearly that period of my life. It, it hmm. was such a, a it was such a tragedy, and sure. and and the things that I did, I don't want to remember. Yeah, I mean, terrible, oh. terrible things. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> and so oh, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in seeing Linda Vista uh, to kind of give me perspective on this. I, I think it's I I can't really recall. Is what other types of divorce shows are out there? I don't really. The record. Odd Couple. The, well, the Odd Couple. Yeah. <laughs> it's something all, completely different. <laughs> if we all had Neil Simon in our life, twenty four seven, you know. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. If there was a time when Neil Simon wasn't all of our lives, twenty four seven. That's another story. <laughs> I have a question. Not having seen the play yet, I'm going this week, um, and I had heard about the main character. Is he is he treated uh, mostly comically, or dramatically, or both? Both. I, I imagine yeah. both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But also, uh, I don't. I, I don't. I can't imagine why people have a problem with it because I'm sure he's not set up as some upstanding individual. Right. Sure. But um, 
let's let's have you talk about this next week. You know, yeah. let me okay. see it. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than being a void, because um, you might very well uh, be with everybody else. And I'll understand if you will. I, I I have no problem with anybody saying, "Oh my God, he's so unpleasant. I don't want to spend any time with him." I fully understand that. But um, I guess what James and I are also saying is that we weren't fun to be around um, when we were uh, going through this. Uh, and um, right. I mean, I still have scars from it, you know, and uh, and always will, frankly. So, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I will be cu- I will be curious to see how uh, the playwright balances the comedy and the drama. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, there's plenty of both. Yeah. OK. All right. Next week. Yeah, I think I, I can't wait to see it because I, I, I'm thinking to myself, has Sondheim written a story, uh, written a song about sure. divorce in some way? I mean, in all the different sure. <laughs> types of love situations, uh, I, I, I think about the reverse of uh, of Bobby's being alive during sure. during mm-hmm. the divorce. But we'll talk about it again when <laughs> Michael and I see the show. Well, that song that leaps into my mind like, is "Could Could I Leave You?" Yeah. Yeah. Follies, yes, sure, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. They're not right. divorced yet, but no, but they're heading there. Not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Except they're not. That's one of the problems of Follies. Anyway, yeah. go on. <laughs> so, um, Peter. Yeah. When I was getting divorced, I think my my wife, my former wife, said I was the wrong man. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you got a yeah, chance to see <laughs> you got a chance to see the wrong man, which is uh something might be totally different than what we're talking about. So tell us about the wrong man. Yeah, um ironically enough, Alfred Hitchcock made a movie called The Wrong Man, which was about a guy who was accused of a crime and um wasn't guilty of it at all and and um even though it was an Alfred Hitchcock movie, it had a happy ending. We'll see if this one has a happy ending. This is about a guy who has a one-night stand. His name is Duran. And uh, with a woman named Mariana. Um, unaware that um, she uh, has been dealing with a guy whom we only uh, are told is called Man in Black. Um, even though he's white. Um, and uh, our hero here, our, our victim, if you will, is Duran. That's his name. And he's black. All right. So, um Man in Black has one issue with Mariana that's far more severe, the fact that Duran has slept with his girlfriend, far more severe. And as a result, he kills her and is able to shift the blame to Duran. And Duran finds himself in this terrible web of uh, being accused of murder and what happens after that? I'm not going to say what happens after that. But what I will say is this is a tremendously powerful piece on a number of levels. First off, uh, the gentleman who wrote the um, book, Music and Lyrics is Ross Golan. And whoa, um, tremendous music. Tremendous. Mm. Uh, he has given Joshua Henry so many opportunities to have real big arias that are so powerful. And while he's doing them, you're saying, my God, learning all this must have been so intense because um, every one of them is a creed de corps, believe me. And um, so, <sighs> of course, you know, I'm going to have a problem with uh, the lyrics because they don't quite rhyme. But I will say this. 
you know, in contemporary musical theater, uh, this guy is better than most. He rhymes more often than some of the other people who are writing for Broadway today. Um, so um, my ears didn't get assaulted nearly as much as uh, they do at other uh, current Broadway musicals. So, so, um, but the story is very powerful. And whenever you have Thomas Kale on a show, you know you're going to get quality. I really do believe that in terms of direction, Thomas Kale is this generation's Michael Bennett. Now, of course, Michael Bennett did choreography too, and um, no, uh, Thomas Kale does not do choreography, but he certainly knows who to work with um, when choreography, and that's uh, Travis Wall. and Travis Wall um, does more musical staging than choreography, I'll grant you, but there's beautiful stage pictures and tremendously done. So, so I think this show really is extraordinarily powerful and uh, quite wonderful in many, 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 many ways. Uh, and I can't imagine that Joshua Henry will not be remembered at the time of the awards. Uh, and I expect him uh, to certainly be a contender, if not a winner, uh, come May and June, because this may very well move. Um, it's a small show. There aren't many people in it. It would be very good um, to um, take a, a space like the Golden, um, <clears throat> or the Booth, uh, for that matter. Um, or maybe um, it can... Um, <laughs> it's funny, we were talking the other day about the... Um, the Avon Theater, which used to be next to the Imperial, where that empty lot is now, which used to be a parking garage. Well, before that, it was the Avon Theater with 850 seats, and they tore it down to make a parking garage, and now the parking garage is gone. Um, This would have been a good show for the Avon, um, God rest its soul. But anyway, I do think we're going to see the wrong man move because it's that good. This is what I'm hearing as well. Oh yeah! So much buzz about the wrong man and having a a, a great vehicle for Joshua Henry. Mm-hmm. So uh, sure is. All right, Michael, are you going to see the wrong man? Uh, I actually don't have it scheduled, so I'll have to wait for the move. <laughs> All right, excellent. Me too. I uh, I did not schedule it. This episode is being brought to you by Don't Call Me Young Lady. Her name is Carolyn Meyer, and at 84, she hates being called Young Lady. On October 27th, at the United Solo Festival, she will tell you why. Don't Call Me Young Lady is her raucous, raunchy, and emotionally engaging story of how she became who she is. Get your tickets today at www.unitedsolo.org. That's unitedsolo.org. So, Michael, you got over uh, to ART New York uh, to see Nothing Gold Can Stay. So tell us about this play by Chad Beckham. Yes, it's uh, presented by Partial Comfort Productions. <laughs> what a wonderful name uh, for a production company. And it is by Chad Beckham, directed by Shelley Butler. Uh, and the main reason, I guess, that I wanted to see this is that it is advertised as the stage debut of Michael Richardson, who is the son of Natasha Richardson and Liam Neeson. And he um, made a point recently of publicly changing his name to honor his his dead mother, uh, not 
uh, for any reason uh, to be interpreted against his father uh, because they have a very positive relationship as well. But he just wanted to do that as a tribute to her. And, I, you know, I think that's that's really wonderful. Um, he also, interestingly, he spells his first name in what apparently is the Irish way. Uh, not only is it M-I-C-H-E-A-L rather than A-E-L, but there's also an accent mark on the A. Uh, so that's something that uh, typographers and uh, et cetera are going to have to deal with. But uh, I think it's still pronounced Michael. Uh, and also in it are Mary Bacon, Peter Mark Kendall, Adrian Rose Bengston, Bengtson, excuse me, and Tally Monahan. And this is um, of, I was... Uh, trepidatious about this subject matter because uh, according to the press release and the press materials it deals with the opioid crisis which needless to say is one of the major tragedies of of current life in america and i suppose other countries as well but i i did want to see it um primarily because of michael richardson and i'm glad i went i think that this playwright shows tremendous promise um the play is written in a very, very much uh, slice of life, ultra realistic style with dialogue that sounds like actual people speak. Um, it's set in northern Maine, and and the plot, um, which is not the main point of the of the play, but anyway, the plot is that this Michael Richardson character Clay is going off to college and he has a girlfriend and she's going to stay behind. Um, and she is, her name is Jess and she's played by Tilly Monaghan. Um, and then the other characters are, uh, uh, just get it right. Um, the, the Clay's mom is played by Mary Bacon, who I've enjoyed in many, many shows well, and she's always wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, uh, then Clay's sister is played by Adrienne Rose Bengtson, and the other uh, character is Jess's brother, Jamie, played by Peter Mark Kendall. And I have to say, um, as I say, I went, you know, just for curiosity's sake about Michael Richardson, but the entire cast performs beautifully in that style that Peter mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I believe, talking about Eileen Atkinson. Where you just it's art that what's the what's the phrase art that obscures art that they're <laughs> acting so naturally that they're that's it's right. like they're not acting mm -hmm. and and that's and it's perfect for this play because as I said the the lines are written uh, I mean if you really if you pick up the script it, it's just how actual people talk I mean people that I know anyway uh, so. And I think that's a great talent to be able to write that kind of dialogue. Um, it, you know, it's not every play should be like that, but the ones that are about normal people in normal, normal circumstances in a slice of life situation dealing with a real life tragedy, uh, it's it's really great. Um, the the uh, flaw of this play, I think, is that it's kind of episodic. Um, it's almost as if there are vignettes of the lives of, of what happens to these people, uh, you know, from the time when the Michael Richardson character is preparing to go to college and then he leaves and, and then what happens after that. Um, 
that there are some of the scenes, several of the scenes just end kind of abruptly with a, either a blackout or a fade out. Um, just when you think that something uh, more is going to happen. And I, I mean, there can be value in that kind of writing, but I, I felt that it made this seem kind of choppy and, um, that is something that I would advise that playwright to to think about. Also, um, again, to avoid a, a spoiler, something very bad happens uh, towards the end. And uh, then there is a scene that is sort of an epilogue that 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 gives a note of hope. Uh, sometime later, we see um, some of the characters in, in this epilogue scene. And I, it just seemed to me that it was, uh, I realized the point was to give this note of hope and not make the, the uh, play end on a tremendously bleak note. But uh, I felt that um, the recovery from the tragedy seemed too quick and too complete. Now, I, you know, it wasn't exactly clear how long after this scene is supposed to take place. And I, you know, and actually I think that sometimes happens in life um, where uh, you would say, Oh gosh, these people are just, you know, sitting around playing cards uh, when something really, really bad happened not that long ago. Um, So, but it does happen in life because people need to cope and they, you know, they need to go on. It's just, it's, seeing it um on stage with um with no transition scene uh i i think that that last scene could be looked at again by the playwright and maybe um finessed and pumped up a bit but i really would recommend this it runs through the 26th uh at the at the art new york space at 502 west 53rd street a lot of um <laughs> a lot of theater, uh, new theater stuff happening um, in the far west 50s <laughs> lately, which is fine with me because it's like uh, two blocks from my apartment. So um, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't know much about Partial Comfort Productions, uh, but I think that this is a very worthy effort and I'm very glad that I went. And, and it's not um, – it's not devastating uh, as I feared it might be. Uh, it's it is hard hitting in in moments, uh, but it is a subject. This you know one of the many. I mean, pick pick you know pick a tragedy. There's so much, mm-hmm. so much going wrong um, mm-hmm. in the world and the country t- mm-hmm. nowadays. But um, and the opioid crisis. It's only touched me very slightly. Uh, I mean, not directly, but through. Uh, two people I, I, I mm, one I knew fairly well and the other who, whom I did not. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just so tragic. Um, there, there are no words for it. Um, and especially because it was so unnecessary. Um, but, uh, if you think you can stand it as far as the, uh, the subject matter, I really would recommend this, uh, nothing gold can stay by Chad Beckham. All right. So that is uh, Partial Comfort Productions, and Michael mentioned that he doesn't know much about it, but I wanted to tell you that Mm -hmm. on their website, they go back to 2002, and in the uh, late 2000s, they had a number of productions directed by Robert O'Hara. So uh, connecting us back to our... Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And... uh, uh, Chad 
Beckham, B-E-C-K-I-M, is one of the artistic directors of this group. Uh, so they, uh, they are committed to um, their mission statement says that they um, perform new works written by members. And so it's a membership organization. So it's interesting. I'll have a link to their website in the show notes, and we'll take care. We'll be able to check that out if you're interested in that. Peter, you got over to the Sheen Center uh, where you saw When It Happens to You. So tell us about that. Yes. um, This is a play um, by Tawny O'Dell, T-A-W-N-I O'Dell, which may mean a lot to a lot of people because she has topped the New York Times bestseller list and has had a book that um, was part of the Oprah Book Club. So she did extraordinarily well there. Um, she come, She's in the play. She comes out and immediately says, I think it's the second or third line of the play, I'm not an actress. Um, and that's true. She isn't, and um, it's apparent every now and then. But by and large, she does a creditable job of um, telling the story of what happened when her daughter was raped. And it's a very powerful, powerful subject, of course. Michael was talking about his powerful subject that he uh, went through, and this is powerful as well, needless to say. Um, Eventually... um, Tawny goes to a shrink uh, who says to her, you should write a book. And I think she did um, dealing with this subject, and now she's made into a play, except she hasn't. The real problem with um, this is that she really is a novelist at heart. And as a result, she does a great deal of telling rather than showing. There are so many incidents in this play that could have been so dramatic. For example, um, we the scene, the scene where um, the uh, an apartment is completely uh, done in. Seeing a scene where um, sh- she's Tony is selling her home and uh, the furniture is um, missing. Now you might say, "Look, this sounds like a very complicated thing with a lot of people," because this is um, a play with very few people. Although everybody. Um, the other three people who are in it are quite fine. Um, she has a son named Connor, played by Connor Lawrence. Excellent performance. The daughter, Tirza, played by Kelly Swint. Excellent performance. Um, and then there's um, a gentleman, E. Clayton Cornelius, who plays um, a, the detective, the doctor, and the psychiatrist, and a few other parts, too. And he's quite wonderful as well. And, you know, they are real actors, and as a result, sometimes Tony doesn't look so good playing with them. But anyway, um, <clears throat> the real problem is that we, uh, we, we're just told too much. That's um, what it comes down to. Okay, um, there's a, a, a talk about being sexually harassed, and um, we, we should see that rather than um, to, to um, have that simply told to us. So the last 10 minutes are extraordinarily powerful in their own way. And here's where Tony actually is giving an address, and she um, simply reads from uh, the script. Now, to be fair, this is a a pretty (laughs) lengthy part. Uh, It's a 90-minute play, but she does most of the talking. And uh, towards the end of the play, she's reading, uh, or is ostensibly reading. Uh, frankly, it may very well be that she's done it so many times that she doesn't really need uh, to read anymore. But she is turning pages while she's up there at a podium, and she comes out with information that is 
particularly surprising and shocking. And when you hear what she has to say, you wonder if she would treat the situation with her daughter quite differently from the way that she's been treating it. Anyway, the power of the play is the fact that the the daughter is on a terrible downward spiral. Um, As the detective says, some people get over it. Some people never get over it. Some people seem to get over it and then commit suicide. So you never know what's going to happen. And um, it, it is a terrible situation to hear about. But wow, if we actually saw what she was describing, if it were a real play, this would really, really be something. And um, the wallop that it would pack would be um, 600 times more powerful than what we actually see here. Uh, that said, a commendable effort. Oh, and by the way, what was so interesting was she mentions um, that um, she took up with um, a, a Broadway producer, and um, which caused consternation with her daughter, too, who felt she was getting involved too much. And um, she mentioned the producer's name was Mitchell. And I said, I wonder if this could be Mitchell Maxwell. Oh, my Um, God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. It is. I I did a a Google and I found out it's (sighs) Mitchell Maxwell, um, who, um, well, (laughs) that's another play in itself, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. All right. When it happens to you at the Sheen Center is playing through November 10th, and we'll have a link to their website in the show notes. Michael and Peter got over to the Paper Mill Playhouse to see uh, Chasing Rainbows, The Road to Oz. So, uh, Peter, why don't you get us started on Chasing Rainbows? Well, you know, this is about Judy Garland, and so as a result, you're going to hear about diet pills, appetite suppressants, and laxatives. However, however, (laughs) however, you don't hear much about it. Why? Because this is essentially Judy the early years. And um, so despite the many agonies that would eventually um, haunt Judy Garland, Chasing Rainbow is more interested in celebrating the the legend, not to castigate her. So um, we see uh, Frances Gum uh, as a little girl. And by the way, it's a terrific, terrific way of introducing her. It's it's almost trompe l'oeil. You're going to be surprised um, because you're going to make an assumption that one kid is Judy Garland, and it's not Frances Gum, if you will, uh, but it's not. Um, Tremendous staging uh, trick that... um, that one really has to um, admire. So anyway, um, but the point of this show is how difficult it was for Judy Garland to get established. And she did have two heroes. And uh, one was Roger Eden, um, whom many of us know, um, a music man who, um, who really was the man behind the girl. But also mentioned as Kay Koverman, whom I didn't know at all. But on the ride back from Paper Mill, Michael Potentier um, told me that this really was a real person who really was a mover and shaker. She was a secretary to MGM uh, mogul Louis B. Mayer. He's the second M in um, MGM, in fact. And she really was somebody, the woman behind the girl who got her front and center. So, um, and she and, later became, I checked it, Peter, she later became the PR director at MGM. Uh, so she was a real mover and shaker. Yeah, which is really great. And um, Karen Mason certainly has the authority to play her, by the way. So yes. uh, that's really quite wonderful, too. Yes, yes. Um, 
And um, so she points out that um, this Francis Gum girl is fresh and original. And um, Maya's response is, this is Hollywood. Why would we want someone fresh and original? There are a lot of lines like that. Marcosito has put in a lot of smart lines. You know, um, there's one where Louis B. Mayer says something like, um, um, get me a script and get me a rewrite man, something like that, uh, you know, indicating that any script is subject to a rewrite, which I thought <laughs> was very clever too. So, all right. Now you're assuming this is a jukebox musical. Of course, you're going to hear all the Judy Garland songs that you hear in the current movie, Judy, and you've heard in any other study of Judy Garland. Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, there are plenty of melodies from yesteryear, but, um, Tina Marie Casamento, who's the brains behind this show, she conceived it, has had new lyrics written. And um, they're, they're quite fine and they're quite surprising, especially when Cave Koverman is dealing with uh, Louis B. Mayer. In the <laughs> second act, there is a tremendous idea here um, using the second most famous songs from The Wizard of Oz um, in, in uh, a very, very smart and wonderful way with almost every word that you know, have known since you were a child, almost, but they apply beautifully to what's going on. I don't want to give it away because it's really quite wonderful. So, But anyway, we do have a lot, a lot of... Um, of new um, uh, words that Casamento herself has provided and occasionally uh, a new melody that David Libby has employed too. So that's um, kind of interesting as well. Well, um, so the real struggle here is that Louis B. Mayer thinks that she's fat, she's hunchbacked, um, she could never be anything and, and that's the struggle and she has to prove herself. Now, the real strength of the show, um, in addition to, I think, what is a very solid book, is uh, the performance um, by the young woman who plays Judy Garland. And I am told that she's been with it for quite some time. This show was done at Goodspeed before it got uh, to Paper Mill Playhouse. And uh, her name is Ruby Rakos, and I think she's the sun and the moon. Um, if this show were to come to Broadway... Um, I do think she'd be quite the contender for the Tony, and I suspect she'd get it. I mean, uh, if she continues giving performances like this in the years to come, she's going to get a Kennedy Center honor. She is so good. And what's really wonderful is, you know, there are times when she's at a party and she starts singing um, you know, one of those things, and you really get the impression it's not that she's showing off at all. It's that she just loves to sing, and this is what's within her. So I think that's really quite wonderful. Now, uh, people who hate child actors, well, you might reconsider um, when you see two kids in this show. One is a, a young woman named – woman. <laughs> I don't think she's um, 10, but anyway, she may be. But anyway, her name is Sophie Knapp. Uh, K-N-A-P-P, and she um, is little Frances Gum, and um, she's tremendous um, in her tiny uh, part of the show because, of course, Judy has to grow up. But it's one of those things like um, for those of us who saw Frankie Michaels in Maine, you feel bad when uh, the story progresses and, and you have to get to the next um, age and um, you know you're not going to see the kid anymore. So um, quite wonderful. And then <laughs> there's a girl named Violet. Tinarello, who plays Shirley Temple, who, believe me, makes baby June look like baby Louise. I mean, she is just so magnificent uh, in being Shirley Temple. Um, I, I was <laughs> laughing uncontrollably at how wonderful she was. So confident, doing every bit of the choreography quite wonderful, too. So anyway, 
Um, so um, I, it's it's all about her getting to do the Wizard of Oz. Now, of course, we know that Judy Garland is going to play Dorothy Gale. I mean, but like 1776, uh, where you know the Declaration of Independence is going to be signed, the point is you don't quite know how. And you, you they really keep you guessing here. Marcosito's done a wonderful job of keeping you guessing as to what's going to happen that's going to get her the part. How is it going to occur? So I think that's very, very skillful. Um, also, what's wonderful, I mean, so many of us have read books about the making of The Wizard of Oz, um, Al Jean Harmitz's book, and there have been many, many articles written about this that many of us have read over the years. So has Marcus Cito, but he's dramatized them very well. This is in contrast to what I was saying to When It Happens to You, where it's not been dramatized well. He dramatizes, the, he really imagines what must have happened in those rooms and what people must have been saying, and I think he does an excellent job of that as well. So, um, but really, one of the main reasons to see the show is to see this Ruby Rakos, because she has what Jesse Mueller had in Beautiful, a smile and a demeanor that makes you want her to succeed. Um, not just as Garland, by the way, but as um, Ruby Rakos, too. So, And, you know, another thing, too, so many musicals have second act trouble. Um, it's, it's even an expression. That's why Steve Suskin wrote a book called Second Act Trouble. But... Don't be surprised if Act 2 interests you me even more than um, Act 1. Uh, I really think that this musical that uh, centers on Over the Rainbow, and it certainly does, may well have you over the moon. Um, mm -hmm. I, 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 so I liked it quite a bit. Okay, Michael, what did you think about this? There is a wonderful moment um, towards the end where, you know, famously... Shirley Temple was the original choice to play Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. And it was, uh, and even though Judy wanted it, it, it looked like it really was not going to happen. Um, but then we see, uh, again, there's kind of a, a passage of time when we see that Judy did, in fact, get the part. And somebody says, Well, what happened to Shirley Temple? <laughs> and then that wonderful young actress comes on and sings somewhere over the rainbow way up <laughs> and apparently you know, according to everything i've read that is why she ultimately did not do it because she just not could not handle the the songs as they were written with judy garland in mind um and yes roger edens uh is famously was famously a champion of, of judy from the start, and uh, he is played by Colin Hanlon very well in this production. It was great for me to see so many um, familiar faces. We also have uh, Stephen DeRosa as Louis B. Mayer. Uh, yeah, just great. Uh, the aforementioned Karen Mason uh, as Ida. Well, I guess her actual name was Ida Coverman, but oh, yeah? called her K for some uh, reason. No. Yeah, it, it's it, nobody called her Ida, but that was her her real name apparently. Um, and then we have Leslie Margarita as Judy's mother, Ethel Gum, and and Max von Essen as her father. Um, and that therein lies. Uh, you know, anyone who's done a lot of reading uh, on Judy and I guess seen the, the several films that have been made about her knows um, that her 
relationship with her father was very, very dear to her, but uh, it was fraught because he apparently was gay. And he the reason they ended up in California in the first place was because he was kicked out of um, – I forget which, which – city they were in right before that um, because he was uh, it was discovered that he was gay and of course this was <laughs> this was the early 30s um, so you could not do that uh, and then he died very young uh, just when she was on the cusp of stardom uh, so he never saw that I, I've always found it fascinating that two of the arguably the greatest singers uh, in history had these kind of tremendous losses of their fathers very early in life. The other one, of course, being Barbra Streisand. And um, the circumstances were very different. But, you know, something like that, I think, can just leave a a, obviously a tremendous hole in your heart, but also – can uh, I guess touch wellsprings of emotion that then come out in the in the art you know that you're that you're creating as a singer or or and it doesn't have to be as a singer but but uh, maybe it's more obvious when the person is a singer this that 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 level of deep emotion. Uh, by the I'll way, certainly I'll certainly add in here Jerry Herman, yeah. whose mother was. Uh, big factor in his success. She's the one who took him to Frank Lesser and said, um, I think my kid has great talent. Why don't you listen? And Frank Lesser said, yes, he does. And that encouraged Jerry Herman to go on. And his mother died before she saw any of his success. Um, so the same type of thing happened. Um, I'm, I'm, I've got to say that I, I feel terrible that I didn't mention Max von Essen and Leslie Margarita because they are so good. Max von Essen has one song that tears down the house as much as any of the Judy Garland songs. And for that matter, they are done so interesting interestingly, um, portrayed by Marcus Cito, that a story about them uh, emerges that you really almost think uh, I could be satisfied if the story were all about them and had nothing to do with Judy Garland. It's so effectively written, especially in the first scene. It is so subtly rendered that um, that this man is gay. It's beautifully done. <clears throat> it's not at all blatantly obvious. I'm, I'm not saying you won't catch on that he's gay. What I'm saying is that it's handled beautifully uh, with wonderful subtext. Yes. So, um, yes. so anyway, go on. Yes, and we certainly don't want to be remiss. Uh, we must mention Michael Wartella as Mickey Rooney, uh-huh. who is a major, major character in the show because he he and Judy were friends from the, from the beginning Friend. and remained so throughout their life their lives. Um, Also, this show is directed and choreographed by Dennis Jones, which I thought he did a fantastic job. I guess he he really started as, um, well, first started as a dancer, and then he was a choreographer, and then started to take on directing. So I, um, I, this was a big show, very big show. I mean, certainly in terms of cast size and and paper mill is a huge space. And to me, his direction and choreography seemed a hundred percent assured. So I absolutely true. And he understands not only Broadway, but also Hollywood musicals. And some of the choreography is reminiscent of Hollywood musicals, which makes sense because they're in Hollywood. Right. Exactly. No, very much so. Um, by the way, I looked it up and Ruby Rakos, I assume that's how she pronounces her name unless it's Rakos. I'm sorry. We'll all know. Yeah. Yeah. Probably soon. Probably soon. (laughs) Um, she has been involved with the show for six years. 
uh, starting when she was 16. Uh, and I, I have a little bit of a connection to the show also in that my uh, a good friend of mine was in the two uh, previous productions. Well, first of all, I saw a workshop of it, um, which must have been 10 years ago or, or not much less than that. Um, and then it was done in two places. It was done at Flat Rock Playhouse in, is it North Carolina? Is that right? That sounds yeah, right, but I don't know. North Carolina, yeah. Yeah, and then as uh, Peter mentioned, at good speed. Um, so my friend was in both of those, uh, and they uh, and they had some people in common, including uh, Ruby and Karen Mason. Uh, but now this production has a lot of new people, uh, and uh, but but Ruby Rakos, yes, for six years. Um, so she's really had, <laughs> had an opportunity to get into that role. And I had a, I had a very Judy week last week because I also saw the movie, uh, with Renee Zellweger, um, in the same week. So, uh, it, so it's been, uh, it, it, it was, you know, wonderful to be immersed in Judy because it is still, uh, you know, uh, if we have a few months left, the 50th anniversary year of her mm-hmm. passing. Um, and, uh, you, you know, I, 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 I the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> right. That also. Yeah. Isn't that isn't that uh, mm-hmm. interesting? So I, I don't I never mind spending time uh, with Judy Garland and Ruby Rako should really be very proud of, of her mm-hmm. achievement, mm-hmm. I think. Oh, by the way, I uh, can I correct myself? I, I uh, that expression I used earlier, I I've looked it up and I realized what the correct <laughs> expression is. It's it's art that conceals art, and that would apply uh, to um, nothing gold can stay, and also uh, some of the performances here as well. Uh, not art, art that obscures art. That sounds very negative. So I'm sorry I misspoke that. <laughs> All right. Uh... So that is Chasing Rainbows over at uh, Paper Mill, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. To wrap us up for the morning, Peter, uh, you got down to the Wild Project to see a production of Class Menagerie, which is uh, directed by Austin Pendleton and Peter Block. Uh, So tell us about this. Well... Um, Glass Menagerie is a play I always see anytime I have a chance to because I first saw it when I was 17 years old and it was the first play that really packed a wallet for me. I had seen other plays before, but this is the one that really galvanized me and said, um, I've got to see more plays. So, um, so I'm, I'm always that 17 year old boy whenever I go to see the play. And, um, this production, um, is worthy in many ways, especially, um, in the sense that uh, <sighs> the four people acted very well, very well indeed. So why am I hesitating? Well, partly because the um, the direction makes one very strange decision, and I don't know if the point of it is that... <sighs> <laughs> that um, Laura is imagining that she's, um, you should pardon the expression which is used in the play, crippled, um, because she never limps at all in this play. She walks very well. So I don't know if it indicates that 
even if you recover from a problem that it still comes with you, it will never leave you. Is that what they're getting at? Maybe that is what they're getting at. And if so, okay. But it was very strange to me uh, for the first time in the 19 productions I've seen of The Glass Menagerie not to see Laura Wingfield limp. So also at the end of the play, when the mother who has been avoiding the word cripple and has been poo-pooing it and denouncing it, when she uses it, um, in no uncertain terms, um, for some reason they decided, the directors decided not to have Laura on stage witnessing this. And I think she should be there. Uh, I think she has mm. to hear her mother say that. And I think it's uh, strange to have her, um, fade into the background and, uh, you only see her outline in the darkness. So I thought that was a very strange decision too. Ginger Grace, I think is excellent as Amanda. And one of the things she has that I haven't seen in many Amandas is that she seems somewhat youthful in demeanor. And when you think of it, uh, she may have gotten married very young. It would seem that she would because she made a bad decision on who to marry. We all know that she had 17 gentlemen callers, and yet she picked the most maverick of the bunch. And that's a young person's mistake. And um, so the fact that she seems younger than many Amandas I've seen, I think is a strength. And I think she plays it very well. Uh, Matt DeRogatis is very good as Tom, and Spencer Scott is especially good as the gentleman caller. But those two decisions, not to have Laura limp and not to have her there when her mother uh, finally speaks, which she really has believed all along, I think are are things that um, don't make sense to me. And I'm not sure they'd make sense to Tennessee Williams um, either. Yeah, I directed a production of the show once, and I can't imagine not having her hear that. Yeah, really. Um, that, so. Yeah, that is a very that sounds like a very odd decision. Mm-hmm. The limping thing, I think we've discussed before. It's supposed to be uh, well, you know who do, who do you trust? Um, at one point, Amanda says it's hardly noticeable. Mm-hmm. So, and so does uh, gentleman caller for that matter. Yeah. Right. Right. So yeah. So I think we are supposed to think it's it, it it's not supposed to be severe. Uh, it's certainly not supposed to be what it was in that ridiculous production with um, with Sally Field, uh, where, well, we won't even say anything <laughs> more about that. Uh, but, um, yeah, uh, I guess that's a decision of the, the, the actress and also the director as to how severe it's going to be and how much of it is in her mind. They do, they do make the point, um, the gentleman caller especially, that – a lot of it is something in it that she has built up in her mind as something that's that's uh, a burden to her, whereas it's really to other people it's barely noticeable. Well, that said, to be fair, um, it's also a good possibility, especially with Amanda, that they want to make her feel good about it. So, right. Um, exactly. You know. You yes. know so, so it may be more severe than they're letting on. So that's True. a possible go. Right. That's why it's open to interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that is uh, The Glass Menagerie down at Wild Project, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Before we get on to trivia and wrapping up the show for the day, uh, recommendation for listeners out there. Uh, Last night, Saturday Night Live started with a cold open that included uh, Billy Porter and Lin-Manuel Miranda doing a... uh, a spoof on the uh, CNN's town halls and uh, 
and uh, debate. It was very, very funny. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. as a video from YouTube. Uh, it's a couple of minutes long. Billy Porter is really becoming uh, uh, beyond a Broadway star. You know, uh, certainly yes, with his, with yes, his big uh, wins here in the last couple of weeks on television. Um, and he is featured, I can tell you, in the new edition of Forbidden Broadway, ah. uh, which I can't review yet because it opens later yeah, this fine. week. But I will tell you about that next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Some, a little tease to look forward to next week. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to. Find a podcast. You can get Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including that CNN spoof on Saturday Night Live with Billy Porter and Lin-Manuel Miranda and a bunch of other small people like uh, Kate McKinnon. <laughs> so, uh, And just a quick reminder that you can support uh, support Broadway Radio by going to patreon.com slash Broadway Radio to support us as well. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah, one of Stephen Sondheim's songs starts with a musical phrase from Edvard Grieg. Which is it? Now, this was a really tough question because mm. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people had a real tough time with this one. Brigadoon, Donald uh, Tessioni, uh, Ingrid Gammerman, uh, so many of them were driven crazy by this one. Uh, a number of people said, hmm, don't we hear a little of Edvard Grieg in The Miller's Son? Um, perhaps we do, but I was really looking for a genuine quotation. And the reason this was a hard question is because a lot of people don't really know that 1987 revival uh, mm. cast album – um, the London cast album, I should say, of Follies. And in that one, of course, um, Make the Most of Your Music replaced Live, Laugh, Love. So, And that begins with Grieg's Piano Concerto in A Marno. It's also the melody you, you hear in Rosemary and How to Succeed. Um, so in case you're unfamiliar with the um, London cast album of Follies, um, you will indeed hear it in um, How to Succeed. So Yeah, you know, I, uh, Peter, when I when I heard the, the question, I, I immediately thought of that. But of course, the main difference is that in How to Succeed, there are no lyrics to it. Uh, <laughs> right. Whereas Sondheim actually set lyrics to Thumb. <laughs> I'm glad you did that because I wouldn't be able to handle that musical phrase nearly as well. So thank you. Well, thank you. Tony Janicki was the second to answer. Yes, indeed. Preceded by Cheryl Hodges Selden. Matthew John Matai was third and Jack, Jeff Hickman was fourth. So this week's question. Many a musical movie that has later become a stage musical on Broadway of course, uses the movie's most famous songs in its overture. But what overture that's more than three minutes long has no songs from its famous film? Hmm. All right. If you know the answer to this, uh, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.
agents to extradite a man in black. He laughed and said that he'd been waiting for his one-way ticket back. When they told him he was going to Folsom Prison, he said, If there's one thing I've learned, I'd rather be locked up than dead. An evil man go on the run. Tradition is rare. Evil men go on the run.